Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I want to introduce to you Dr. Kyle Sharon. Um, um, Dr. Sharon and I became friends about six and a half years ago uh, when we were in our, uh, we started our doctoral work together in our cohort and uh, quickly became friends. And uh, the Lord has continued to bless both of us through this friendship. I bring him in because I, uh, number one, he's a blessing to my heart. And at a time of year when that is so critical for us, uh, specifically in the season that we are in, uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to get to sit under his preaching and his encouragement. He is the lead pastor at Faith Family Church in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, about an hour north of Nash Vegas. And um, uh, he has served faithfully there for the last five years. The best 12 years of his life, he said, over the last two, uh, two and a half years, uh, the church has experienced some incredible growth under his leadership, and the Lord is doing uh, a great work. He is a phenomenal speaker, as you uh, are about to learn, and some of you have heard him before. Uh, he is a great theologian, and uh, he is a great pastor, but most of all, he's a faithful friend. And I'm thankful for that friendship, and I'm excited for you to have the opportunity to hear from him this morning. Kyle, would you come and share with us? Thank you. So the Harrisons are, are some of our mentors. Um, I'm not going to say like a father in the faith, but like a, like a brother in the faith. And um, my wife, every time we leave them, she just says, um, I, I, love, I love being around that woman. I love being around that woman. Uh, my wife's name's Sarah. She's from Canada. She's not here. She'll be here in the second service. You'll see her come in. She called me right before the service. Uh, when I left here, when I was talking to you, Lane, and left and took the call, and she said, she said, Kyle. I said, yes, sweetie, how are you? She said, what are you wearing? And I'm like, clothes. She said, you are not wearing what I laid out for you. Are you wearing green with blue? And I'm like, yeah, I think it matches perfectly. She says, I'm bringing a change of clothes when I come. So I'll be dressed a little differently the second service. But uh, that's, that's how we do things. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles, or maybe more appropriately, let's turn on our Bibles and meet at Luke chapter 2. Uh, the old timers used to say, I love to hear the, the rustling of the pages when you turn. Uh, I like to tell our church, I love to see the warm neon glow on your face. Makes me feel like I'm preaching to angels. Um, all right, Luke chapter 2, and uh, before we dive in, would you join me as we approach the throne of grace? God, our hearts yearn for you because of the blood that bought us, the love that sought us, and the grace that taught us. Father, I'm well aware that we are in familiar territory with Luke chapter 2 but help it to land on us fresh. Help us to see our sin. Help us to see our Savior. We'll trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church our pastor's fairly young. The average age is 26. So to keep them from having an, an unhealthy view of me, I tend to confess a sin each time I preach. So here's, here's my confession to you. I have always had a problem with God's timing. Often I'll find myself saying, 
Why is this happening now? God, the timing just doesn't make sense. And most of the time, believe it or not, God is too slow for me. The one who created the world in six days is just laying out my life too slowly. So I've had problems with God's timing. I've also had problems with where God places me. And maybe you can identify. Have you ever found yourself at a place in life where you thought, God, I don't want to be in this place. I want to be in another place. I don't want to be here. I want to be there. And I'm not happy. You see, sometimes we have a problem with God's timing, with God's placing. Sometimes we have a problem with God's circumstances that he drops on us. God, why are you allowing this person to spread lies about me, to suppress me? God, I don't like my current situation. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand what it's for. I call those times in life the cave moments. Everything is dark and cold. You start to imagine things happening that aren't actually happening. Have you ever been there? You ever start to ask some of those questions? Well, God is waiting for you in Luke chapter 2. Here we have two caves. I want to give the first cave to you. It's the cave of God's sovereignty and your questions. The cave of God's sovereignty and your questions. You're going to see that in this story, God's sovereignty is the answer to your questions. And I love from the very beginning, we see that God uses people in his sovereign plan. Notice God's control in the text. God has Caesar Augustus and his regional representative to do his bidding. Caesar Augustus was the first and probably the greatest Roman emperor. He expanded the empire to include the entire Mediterranean region, which means he reigned over most of the known world. He established the famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He ushered in the golden age of Roman literature and architecture. His great uncle was Julius Caesar. Many of you took Shakespeare classes in high school or in college. This is Julius Caesar's grandnephew. They say that Caesar Augustus came to lead Rome when it was made of brick, but when he died, Rome was made of marble. And Caesars believed, much like the pharaohs, that they were divinely bred, that they were linked to the gods. In fact, this Caesar thought he was the Messiah. He starts building the temple because the Messiah is coming to build the temple. Just a few years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Caesar Augustus had coins minted with Julius Caesar on one side with the title God, and then his image stamped on the other side of the coin bearing the caption, the Son of God. I mean, these were the days when it seemed like Caesar Augustus was in control of the events of the world, and Mary and Joseph were just pawns in his awesome, efficient administration. However, nothing could be further from the truth. It might look like Caesar was calling the shots. It might look like Mary and Joseph were helpless pawns caught up in the movement of world history. But in reality, every move was perfectly timed and directed by the hand of God. Friend, your, your times are in God's hands. And he is sovereign. And he can use the most powerful empire on earth to do his bidding if he desires. He rules over all. 
And many of you need to remember that right now. That God reigns and the most powerful man on the planet is just a pawn in his hand. Augustus was God's errand boy. He delivered a decree at precisely the right moment. The decree ordered that a census be taken. You find it in verse 1. Caesar Augustus ordered this census for two reasons. Number one, historians inform us, was to determine the number of military-aged men there were in the kingdom. This would allow them to draft any number of men at, at any time he chose. The second reason, and I think probably the most important to Caesar, was for financial purposes. This was a registration for the purpose of taxation. All the inhabitants of Rome, whether Jew or Gentile, were to go to their town of their lineage and register their name, their occupation, and their children's names. I can see here that God is just orchestrating everything because he uses people in a sovereign plan. But notice he uses places as well. Notice in verse 11 and then in verse 15, notice the city, Bethlehem. Now, what do we know about Bethlehem? Bethlehem was the same Old Testament town where Jacob buried his wife, Rachel, after she gave birth to a child. Bethlehem fields where Mary and Joseph passed by were the same fields where Ruth once gathered wheat until she was noticed by Boaz. This was the same little village where a shepherd boy named David tended the family sheep before he was chosen to be the next king of Israel. More recently, John Piper's mother was killed outside the city in a bus accident. However, we know this city for something else. This city is known for more than that. You're already thinking, okay, Kyle, okay, I know the event that's taking place in Bethlehem. I know Micah chapter 6, verse 2, the Messiah is going to be born there. But how? How is God going to get Joseph and Mary to the sleepy little town of Bethlehem so that the Messiah can be born there? Well, God says, no problem. I've got this Roman emperor. I've got this governor of Syria, and that will do just fine. I've got their administrators who will say, you know what? I think the best way to do this is to get people back to their hometowns and to register them that way. And some of you, you're at your jobs. You're shopping in the city. You walk through the door of your too small home and you're saying, I don't want to be here. I want to be someplace else. God, I, I, I know I don't know how you're going to get me from where I am now to where I want to be. And I would just remind you that God has no problems getting Joseph and Mary from where they were to where he needed them to be. And here's how that should land on you. Stop jockeying for position. God can get you there. And he can use the most powerful empire on earth to do it if he needs to. God is sovereign in all of our ways, in all of our times, in all of our places. All the circumstances of our lives are in his hands. And some of you think, like many people in our church, in my church do, that, that God is, is sovereign in true, cosmic, eternal terms, but not in everyday details of your life. And that's just simply not true. You have been deceived. You have been lied to. The city and subdivision that you're living in is not by accident. Your business and your competitor's business is not outside of God's plan. God uses circumstances in his sovereign plan. Bethlehem was at least a three-day journey from Nazareth. 
Mary is, is, as I like to say, very pregnant at this time. She's about to give birth to a baby at any moment. So she and Joseph travel 70 to 90 miles, depending upon which route they chose. Finally, they arrive at a first century motel. And you know, just a few weeks ago in the text, you heard the angel say to Mary, Greetings, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. And that's why I'm so surprised to hear in this text that Mary now hears, there is no room for you in the motel. I mean, the two phrases don't seem to go together. Greetings, highly favored one. Sorry, ma'am, the registration process brought more people in than expected. You're going to have to sleep outside. I mean, those circumstances seem to contradict the power and the comfort of God's previous words. Now, I understand the uniqueness of this, of course, in redemptive history. But isn't this the way that God deals with believers in all generations? The Lord says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. But you hear the doctor say, it's cancer. I will never leave you or forsake you. But some of you hear your spouse say, I don't love you anymore. I found someone else. I will never leave you or forsake you. Dad, I'm pregnant. Mom, I never want to see you again. Uh, Mrs. Jenkins, on behalf of our grateful country, I want to extend our deepest sympathies and appreciation because your husband has given the ultimate sacrifice to protect our freedom. You see, some of you, you think circumstances can ruin your life. Some of you think circumstances have ruined your life, but circumstances can't ruin your life. The way you can respond to them is the only thing that can ruin your life. Because in this passage, God is saying to us, there is no circumstance where my power cannot be displayed. There is no weeping where my comfort isn't sufficient. There is no circumstance where my promises are trumped. So he's saying, hear me loud and clear, believe me, trust me. And and whenever the why is bouncing around in our five-ounce brain, why don't we just add to that why the question, Lord, how can I glorify you in this? I don't know what you're doing, but I know that you want me to know you more. I know that you want me to love you more. I know that you want me to glorify you more. So in this... How can I glorify you? It's interesting that R.C. Sproul doesn't believe that it was required for females to come to the registration journey. That only the men were commanded to make the journey. But Joseph chose to bring Mary along because she was so close to delivery. So the argument could be made that Mary could be laying at home in the comfort with her cousin Elizabeth who would probably be returning the favor, delivering her baby. Instead, the night air is punctuated by Mary's cries of pain. She's surrounded by manure and the stench of animals. The ground, no doubt, has been packed hard by the cattle, or even worse, muddied by recent rain. And they're not in a barn, like most of us picture. Justin Martyr said, and by the way, how much do you have to hate your son to name him Justin Martyr? Right? Uh, only thing worse would be to name him Justin Bieber. Oh, <laughs> terrible. Look, th- 
He was named Martyr because, because he died. That was attributed to him later. But Justin Martyr, the second century church leader, so right after the time of Christ, stated that the specific birthplace of Jesus was a shallow cave that was used as a shelter for animals. And this was a common practice in the day. Your local pole barn company didn't come to construct a barn for your cattle. Animals were kept in caves. And it was in a cave that Mary gave birth to Jesus. There were no doctors or nurses or friends or even a midwife to help this frightened teenage girl deliver her slippery son into the calloused hands of a teenage carpenter named Joseph. She wrapped his little fat appendages with cloths, laid him in a fonte, which is a Greek word for a feeding trough. Now Bethlehem is about six miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus was born in a cave in Bethlehem. Around 30, 33 years later, he would die on a cross in Jerusalem and they would lay him in a first century tomb, which in that day was a cave. He was born in a cave. He was buried in a cave. One cave brings life. One cave brings death. Jesus exited one cave in the arms of his mother, wrapped like a, a little mummy. Jesus exited the other cave, taking his mummy clothes off and wrapping death in those bandages. He walked out, but death stayed in. Jesus does some of his best work in a cave. Now here's a little skeptic sidebar. Our, our church... Our church back home is right outside a military base, and, and we have skeptics that just run to us all the time, so I like to address them. Maybe you're here, and, and you're a skeptic as well. When Jesus left heaven, he went from riches to rags. We call that the virgin birth. And Christianity is irrelevant without the virgin birth. And some of you may have difficulty with the virgin birth, but I really don't understand why. If we can make a woman have a baby without an intimate act through in vitro fertilization, why is it hard to believe that God gave life without an intimate act? So while you're struggling to grasp the virgin birth, let me, let me give you something even more unbelievable. Jesus rose from the dead. And here's what I found. If you can find your way into believing the empty tomb, the virgin birth is not a problem. So the first cave, cave of God's sovereignty in your questions. Let me give you the second cave. The cave of God's gospel and your responses. We have in verse 8, angels proclaiming the gospel from the sky. And there are three things I want you to notice here in this section. Uh, the shepherds, the animals, and the angels. We'll start with the shepherds. Here God gives a heavenly announcement of the lamb to the lamb keepers. Would you notice in verse 8, Luke 2, 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, the imagery of the shepherd is redeemed in Scripture. The Bible talks positively about the role of shepherds. I mean, after all, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. However, in the first century, you couldn't get much lower than the shepherds. They were the ultimate unskilled laborers. Shepherding was a job you gave to kids. Think David and all of his older brothers. 
Who had the job of shepherding in the family? The runt. So if as an adult you were still a shepherd, that was a total life fail. It was the lowest rung of the social ladder. They were not known for being clean. They were actually known for thievery. They, they would still, oh, oh, is that your sheep? My bad. Yeah. See, I appreciate your mercy laugh. My church just throws Bibles at me when I throw out stuff like that. Look, their testimony was not even accepted in the court of law because they were notorious liars. So it's a big deal that the angel delivered the announcement of Jesus' birth to outcast. God bypassed announcing it to the educated, the religious, the elite, the politically connected, the wealthy, the powerful. It did not arrive to the temple priests, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, or the rule-keeping Pharisees who ran the local synagogue movement. God did not have someone send a memo to King Caesar Augustus saying, You think you're the savior of the world? Please, I'm sending him. No, the shepherds had to be the least likely people on earth to receive the angelic announcement about the birth of a king. In fact, shepherds were considered ceremonially unclean. Keeping flock was not glorious work. There were certain things that fit well under the job description of a shepherd. Delivering lambs, fighting off wolves, touching dead animals, eating outside on a hillside without the benefit of purified water for cleansing. The nature of their work meant that they did not observe the ceremonial laws. They worked on the Sabbath because sheep don't take Saturdays off. They, they were not involved in the religious services of their day. They are lowly and humble, unimportant, and ignored by the world. But not by God. To these lowly men, the angel gives the highest theology. And I think something very interesting here in the text is the note that they kept their sheep out at night. Now this is not the best shift. This was only done for a special group of sheep. These lambs were Passover lambs. They kept them out at night so they would not intermingle with the other sheep. And according to what the rabbis tell us that lived in this time, flocks that were close to Jerusalem were devoted to the temple sacrificial system. Yet, these shepherds themselves, though they were raising the animals that would be used in the sacrificial system, because of their uncleanness, would not likely be allowed to participate in the temple services themselves. They were guardians of the lambs that pointed to salvation, but they were out of reach of salvation themselves. Salvation was so close, but so far away. And I think that leads us to a gospel principle. When the gospel is proclaimed, it exposes us for who we are. You have rebelled against God. You have chosen fruit over him. So he came down to you. God is not born in glory, but in humility. Not in a palace of gold and silver, but in the feeding trough for animals. Not clothed in silk, but wrapped in rags. In other words, in this passage, we're seeing God humbling himself for our sakes. And it is a glorious picture of what God does for us in the gospel. 
Whatever it takes, he does. Whatever it costs, he pays. Wherever he has to go, he goes. Whatever he has to bear, he bears. And he does this. He, he does not experience any of this because of his sin. He accepts the experience of humiliation so that he can become your sin. You are the shepherd in need of a sacrificial lamb. So that's the shepherds. Let's talk about the animals. Now, um, I, I don't know about it in this church, but in my church back home, we don't have what I call a lot of tree huggers. We just don't. But we do have a lot of animal huggers. They cringe every time they hear Jesus referred to as the lamb because they're concerned for cruelty toward animals. God designed animals to be used by humans, but not abused by them. The sacrificial system was not some sick middle school boys torturing cats in a garage. Mindless torture of animals is sickening, and this, that's not what we find in Scripture. Uh, killing an, an endangered giraffe or elephant or whatever and putting the head in the office, that, that's not what we find in the temple sacrificial system. Now, I think you can kill animals for three reasons. Number one, a threat to your safety. Scripture clearly teaches that human life trumps animal life. They're not a made in the Imago Dei. We are. I think you can kill an animal for food. In our culture, some of you hunt. You like to shoot deer and eat them. I think that's, I think that's great. You can do that. Um, and realize it's different in each culture. In the Philippines, they're eating horse. So that may be offensive to us, but, you know, that's like a deer to them. We had a, a couple from our church that just came back from Australia, and they were eating kangaroo. So understand that you can kill an animal if it's a threat to your safety or for your food or if it's a non-invasive species that maybe you don't even plan to eat, like ball pythons in the Everglades. They, they are destroying the ecosystem in Florida. By killing them, you're protecting other animal life. So what I'm saying is animals should not be abused, but nor should they be worshipped. In the United States, we treat animals like humans. <laughs> I mean, we're buying them clothes, gourmet food. People are letting them kiss them in the mouth. I mean, it's just a real sad state of affairs in the States. If your dog has a sweater, you should repent. I mean, like a real Ralph Lauren sweater. I'm worried for your soul. All right, let's, let's just get back. All right, so here the shepherds are raising animals for sacrifices. Now, these lambs are pointing to the full and final sacrifice, Jesus Christ. He is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That's why we don't do animal sacrifices now. That's why we don't have altars now, because Jesus is the full and final sacrifice. Now, let's look at the, the third, uh, shepherds, shepherds, animals. Now, let's look at angels. John Owen said, in the divine scriptures, there are shallows and there are deeps. Shallows where the lamb may wade and deeps where the elephant may swim. Now he means by that that there are some parts of the Bible that the youngest Christian can understand. And some parts of the Bible where the most mature, most theologically savvy, most studied Christian cannot plumb the depths of. And I think when we deal with the angels here, we're in those waters. We find an army of angels appearing before the shepherds declaring... The good news, the euangelion, same word for gospel. They're declaring the gospel, 
They're declaring the birth of Christ. Notice in verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here's what I want you to understand. This army of angels is far more powerful than a billion nuclear bombs. A pastor, a military church This group of angels is far more powerful than the United States Army. This army of angels could have incinerated every human being on earth should God have appointed it. This angel of armies is far more powerful than anything you could possibly conceive. This army of angels comes and they are coming to announce peace. Normally we don't send an army to announce peace. When our nation sends out the special forces in in my church and special ops in my church, they're they're not going to announce peace. They're sending them out to kill people and break things. What, What army comes to announce peace? And I think this very announcement of peace by this army reminds us that one day this army will come again with Jesus and it will be too late for sinners to find peace. Now is the time for you to receive this free, gracious peace offered through Jesus Christ. Because then it will be too late. Now notice that these angels came singing. But what were they singing? And I I love hearing, when I was just, I was listening here as I was singing. And I had to stop singing and just listen. Because I love a singing church. And you guys sing. And that's great. What, What were these angels singing? They were singing the gospel. And, it, and you didn't have like the big angel singing bass and the little angel singing tenor. This wasn't the Gaithers. It, it was a, a poetic, monotone chanting, swelling and praising. The unnumbered host of angels must have shaken the ground with their chanting. So much so that in verse 9, the shepherds were greatly afraid. Or as the old King Jimmy says it, they were sore afraid. But these angels, you understand, they were excited about the gospel. And then you say, Kyle, of course they're excited about the gospel. I mean, that's their job to make the announcement, to sing praises to God, to be excited about the gospel. You must understand that the angels never go through the motions. You and I may go through the motions. There may be days when we're in this auditorium and we're singing, where love ran red, my sin washed white, and our minds are a million miles away, and we're mad at one another. We're thinking about our to-do list. We're just going through the motions. But the angels never do that. When the angels say, glory to God in the highest, they mean it, and they're genuinely excited about the gospel. And I want to tell you this, my friends. These angels ought not to be more excited about the gospel than you and me. And let me tell you why. Because these angels didn't need to be forgiven. They were without sin. These angels didn't need Jesus to die for them. These angels had never rebelled against God. But you and I have. And we ought to... Never let these angels outpraise us. Here's a second gospel principle. When the gospel is proclaimed, we get loud. These angels are excited about the gospel, but we should be more excited about the gospel. 
Angels who need no forgiveness love the gospel. How much more should we who desperately need forgiveness love this gospel? Does your praise of God for his grace in the gospel rival the praise of angels? I'm going to give you this last gospel principle. When the gospel is proclaimed, it changes our outlook on the monotony of day-to-day living. You must realize that nothing has changed in the social standing of the shepherds. It wasn't like all of a sudden, since they heard from the angels and they went to the manger and they saw the baby Messiah, that all of a sudden their testimony can be trusted in the court of law. It's not like all of a sudden they could hold an office. It's not like all of a sudden they could be trusted in society's eyes. It's not like they didn't spend every waking day for the rest of their lives in and out of caves. No, none of that was fixed. Yet they left rejoicing. I want you to understand that this birth gives meaning to your job. It gives meaning to your to-do list. It transfers your identity from your job to your standing in Christ. You, you begin to view your waiting, your questions, your circumstances in the life in light of God's sovereignty. And when you do that, it emblazes everything with meaning. I think of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. In the very last book, The Last Battle, Queen Lucy has this great line where she essentially says, and I quote, Yes, in our world, something was born in a stable that was larger than our entire world. End quote. Now, I could rephrase it and say it like this. Something was once born in a cave that was larger than any of your caves. Your caves make sense in light of the cave of God. So as you're in your cave, let the joy of Christ ring out. Would you stand with me and let's pray together.